Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash watsonassistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is just to entertain, but to educate and teach and put in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Are we really returning to normalcy here? Despite the 21.5 million people collecting unemployment benefits, is this the fabled V-shaped recovery that so many people were hoping for? Well, that's what the market's saying. Even as the average didn't do much, say Dow inching up 12 points, declining, SP declining 0.34%, NASDAQ losing 0.69%. See, that's the problem. I think we're looking at a V-shaped recovery. But it's a V-shaped recovery in the stock market. And that has almost nothing to do with the V-shaped recovery in the economy. Prosper. Live. When you look at the NASDAQ 100, the tech-heavy index that briefly hit an all-time high today, it sure doesn't seem indicative of the broader jobs picture. And most of the moves that were responsible for whatever gains we had were from airlines and hotels and casinos, all of which I put in the so-called less bad category, less bad than we thought, a trend that can last a few more days before it does peter out. And people do a lot of fast gaming of it, but it does peter out. It's kind of musical chairs. How can the market rebound without the economy? Because the market doesn't represent the economy. It represents the future of big business. The bigger the business, the more it moves the major averages. And that matters because this is the first recession where big business, along, of course, with bigger wealth, but that's not really my show, is coming through virtually unscathed, if not going for the gold. Small business, the ones that aren't publicly traded, they're dropping like flies after a government-mandated shutdown because they're non-essential. And the people who work there are non-essential. It's hard enough to run a small business. How about when the government says you, you're closed and the landlord says, I don't care. That's the thing about this pandemic. It's been one of the greatest wealth transfers in history. And it's a wealth transfer that was mandated by the state. I think that we'll have a, it'll have a horrible effect on our country. But we've barely begun to see the impact. Still, we just got some figures from the American Bankruptcy Institute that will chill both Republican and Democrat. That's right. The today's numbers show a 48% jump in Chapter 11 bankruptcy filings. That's that pesky real world asserting itself. But the only big bankruptcy that we've seen in the, in the stock market is Hertz. Now, I'm not trying to blame the government for this. The Treasury Department's practically shoveling money at small and mid-sized businesses. They can't find enough of them. There's still $186 billion left in the Paycheck Protection Program. The companies that took the money just got a big break. They only need to spend 60% on their employees to get the loans forgiven down from the original 75. That's important as most small businesses fail because they can't afford to pay the rent. They can cut back on labor. They can skimp on the product. They can figure out ways to work more efficiently. But they can't lower the darn rent And from what we can tell, there hasn't been much forbearance from the major landlords. But in the end, the stimulus package probably won't be enough for one simple reason. 
And it's an odd one that's not talked about enough. It's not going to work because of social distancing. Social distancing has become the real bane of small business and a boon to the larger ones. Again, while that's not really anybody's fault, it's producing some terrible outcomes. Lately, we've seen uh, we've been seeing some real improvements in the coronavirus numbers. However, that's only happening due to the widespread adoption of mass and social distance guidelines. The problem, though, is that it's very hard to make money at a restaurant or a retailer if you're not allowed to uh, if you've got to wear a mask at a bar. It's just such a buzzkill, and you can't have crowds anywhere. In the restaurant industry, which employs about 15 million people, social distancing means losing a ton of tables and a lot of bar space. The latter's brutal because alcohol is where the real money is. But for big business, let me give you a concrete example. I walked through this, and I decided this is how I am going to explain it because it keeps eluding people. It's driving me crazy. Costco. Last night, Costco reported some magnificent 5.4% safe store sales growth versus last year. Wall Street was only looking for 1.6%. They also saw an incredible 106% pickup in e-commerce. You heard me, 106. The stock moved up four points in appreciation while everything else got clobbered in sector. Costco has, except for the lowest end retailers, Costco has a simple ethos. They try to focus on a small number of producers where they can move huge volumes, thus securing some terrific bargains for their customers. They don't try to make money on markup. You get better prices when you buy in bulk. That's the power of what we call scale. Now, consider what they sell. All sorts of foods, steaks, crab legs, fish, all at much cheaper prices than your local butcher or fishmonger. They sell auto parts for astoundingly less than what you'd pay at the local mechanic. The apparel prices are as low as it gets. No department store can beat them. Fruits and vegetables, they're better looking and more organic than anything your corner green grocer can supply, often at half the price. I am a bit of a wine official. Chianato, not great, but good enough. And they were selling Camus below the price that my liquor store pays to the vineyard before even marking it up. Health and beauty aids, don't you dare compare them to Harmon, owned by the hapless Bed Bath & Beyond, a place that had to be closed for- <laughs> it didn't get to open until May 30th. Costco's sporting goods so inexpensive that you have to wonder how any mom-and-pop competitor can stay in business. Maybe Best Buy can compete on electronics. Maybe not. I know that local jewelries tried to bring in special inventory, but not at Costco special prices. Paper towels, toilet paper, they had to limit how many you can take because the prices were so great. Uh, thank heavens that's gone. The only category that Costco didn't compete in this month is hearing aids. The vision was closed. They're still the cheapest place to get this ultimate baby boom product, but they won't bring them back until they can sell them safely. Don't worry, though. They're coming, as are Costco's terrific free samples in a newer, safer form. Now, I bring up Costco because a month ago they instituted a policy saying that all customers need to wear masks covering their mouth and nose at all times, unless you're two. No mask, no shoes, no service. We initially heard a bunch of stories about a potential backlash from shoppers who boycott the chain rather than mask up. You probably saw those. A lot of people said, oh, that's the end of Costco. Mask, mask, mask. Wrong. Turns out most customers understand. If anything, the mask policy has helped them immensely because people feel safest shopping there. That plus Costco's 16 feet wide aisles give Costco the one-two punch against COVID-19 and the supermarkets or any other store for that matter. For all the chatter about frustrated Americans who don't want to wear masks to shop, the reality is that most consumers desperately want a safe place to buy their essentials with masked men and women manning all parts of the store. Let's see. Okay, highest quality, lowest prices, Incredibly wide, 16-feet aisles, safest shopping experience, all masked, other than Amazon, which you have to put the box out there for 24 hours. But who the heck can compete with that combination? That's right, and there's the problem. 
I want you to go to your Costco, go aisle by aisle. And what you see is the destruction of nearly every small to medium sized retailer right there in front of you. Now, the local guys are starting to reopen, but they're in debt. They're struggling to pay the rent. They've already lost customers with big box chains who've now tasted them and loved them. And they just can't compete with Costco on pricing or, more importantly, safety. They can't rival Target order ahead and pick up contactless, of course. They can't beat Walmart with its ability to deliver anywhere, anytime at low prices. At best, these mom-and-pop outfits can set up an omnichannel Facebook shop powered by Shopify, which is better than nothing, but probably not enough. And that's just retail. Smaller restaurants even worse. You can rip out half the seats from most of the big chain locations, and they're just going to make up the difference with takeout and delivery. But ordinary restaurants, they get crushed by delivery because the real money's at the bar, and delivery takes a chunk of their profits. Remember, I co-own two places, and we could lose two-thirds of our tables if we are lucky. We aren't even allowed to be open right now in order to meet the rules that we don't even have yet. And we're costing a fortune just to find out what those are. Our Italian food at the Longshoreman may be better than the Olive Garden, but how the heck do we make money with only four tables instead of 12? And by the way, you can't we don't have a bottomless salad bar. And if you try to steal our rolls, good luck. Now, what's happening to small business all over the country and the stock market will never capture that kind of pain that I just described. Instead, they'll capture all the gain as the larger outfits take share from tiny companies. And those are the ones of the stocks that we're trading. The bottom line, you might say that's just capitalism. But the logical conclusion here is a world where we have a handful of big retailers and a handful of big restaurants Well, all publicly traded, and that's it. Without a second stimulus package, that's what the future will look like. I guarantee it, and you won't enjoy it, even if you profit off the rising stocks of the big box stores that are taking over the world and more in the corner store and whatever the heck it once pervaded. Zach in Pennsylvania. Zach! Hey, Jim. Big booyah from Eagles Nation. How are you? Eagles Nation's getting ready for a season, even if we're not allowed to go see it. I'm good. How about you? Good, man. So I have a two-part question. I'm in my early 30s. I want to know, is Sherwin-Williams a long-term buy, and can that stock get to 1000 You know what? It's so funny. I happen to like the stock of Sherwin-Williams very much ever since they bought Valspar. But I like even more. I, I, no, look, let's just leave it that. I think Sherwin-Williams is a great company. I was going to say I like Lowe's and Home Depot. But you know what? I'm just giving it to you. I'm giving it to Zach. Sherwin-Williams is a winner. Just, by the way, not a lot of competition in the paint business. You notice that? They shouldn't have let all those companies combine. Hey, why don't we go to Mark in Iowa. Mark. Hi, Jim. I'm a new investor that bought Delphi Technologies when it was low. Right. They're being, they're being bought out by Borg Warner late quarter three or quarter three or quarter two or quarter three sometime. Mm-hmm. Now I need to better, better understand how that affects a company's value when it buys out another company well, like that? Or is there more value in selling? Right, let me the- just say, Borg Warner's down 20%. For the next one's to run. And I know that's what I say, run. There are people actually running stocks these days. They ran the hotel. Now they're, ran it, they're running the uh, airlines. The next thing they're going to do is they're going to run the autos. That's just my prediction. And Borg Warner's one of the runs that they're going to run. Magna is the best in that segment. And when I say run, you know exactly what I mean. Go read my besotten Twitter file that I can't barely get through. Disgust me, frankly. I'm disgusted by it. I don't need Twitter any more than the president. Oh, no. The president needs it. I forgot. All right. I think we're looking at a V-shaped recovery in the stock market, but not the economy. This is the one for the stock market. This is the one for the economy because that's live long and prosper. And quite frankly, you may not enjoy what's about to happen in the real economy. On Man Money tonight, I'm sitting down with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to talk employment, reopening plans, and the role that business can play amid recent civil unrest. It'll be good because tomorrow I'll be speaking to Vice President Pence. Then my sit-down with CEO J.M. Smucker. 
find out if the latest quarter could offer some food for thought. And Shopify is up over 100% over the past two months alone. Is there still time to buy this red-hot stock? I've got the exclusive. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. There's no doubt that things are looking better for the economy than they were a month or two ago, even as civil unrest is sweeping the nation. Still, the reopening is going pretty well, and we're bleeding jobs at a much slower pace than we were near the bottom. But, man, we still got sky-high unemployment. Just as important, we're still on federal life support. That life support has a limited shelf life. What happens when the Paycheck Protection Program runs out of money? What happens when the extra $600 a week in unemployment insurance stops coming at the end of July? Is business picking up fast enough to offset that damage? Do we need another round of stimulus? The Democrats are making the case we need more spending. So let's go straight to the source with Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, to get a clearer picture of what we can do to bolster a sagging economy. Speaker Pelosi, welcome back to Mad Money. Wonderful to be here, Jim. All right, so, um, Madam Speaker, we're on the cusp of seeing a number tomorrow morning at 8.30 that may be the worst we've seen maybe since the Great Depression. Uh, What are the prospects for an extension of enhanced unemployment benefits, the $600 per week, that will make it so the people who are trying to find jobs can also put food on the table? Well, first of all, let me just say that the HEROES Act is an answer in many ways to the challenge that our economy faces. If we want to open up the economy, and we all do, we need to defeat the virus. And that's testing, tracing, treatment, and isolation. And we don't have a a vaccine and we don't have a cure, but we do have a method to defeat the vaccine, excuse me, the virus, and we have to do that. So that's one way. Uh, to open the economy. The other way is to honor our heroes. Let's keep these people working. Uh, The money that we're putting into state and local governments to pay our healthcare workers, our first responders, our sanitation, transportation, teachers, and the rest are keeping people working. Otherwise, the states will have to fire some and raise taxes or some combination thereof. So this is about the economy. It's about stimulus. And the third is putting money in people's pockets. I'm very uh, concerned about what would happen if the Republicans decide to cut off the unemployment insurance, regardless of the $600, but the un- uh, that too. But the unemployment insh- uh, insurance uh, is, a, is a very, very valuable stimulus, as well as uh, uh, meeting the needs of America's working families who have lost their jobs through no fault of their own. So again, open the economy, keep government going, uh, but having these people employed and, per- and having purchasing power by- and putting money in people's pockets 
It's about the economy, all of it. One that you left out, I know that uh, Costco, the second largest retailer in the country, feels is very important and the numbers justify it, is the mask. Uh, But there are a lot of people who won't wear the mask. They feel that the mask is somehow unmanly or the mask has issues beyond just uh, a psychological defeat. But it's been instrumental in, in getting places to open again. Absolutely. Real men wear masks and these masks are essentially important. And if you decide not to wear a mask, uh, you're insulting anyone with whom you come in contact. If you would decide not to wear a mask, you could be bringing home something to your family that might not be a welcome guest. That would be a virus. So again, this, I didn't mention it's such common sense. I didn't say some other things, but you're absolutely right. And thank you for emphasizing it. The mask is essential, is essential. Of course. Now, I am seeing some states, including the one I live in, borrowing money at rates that I don't think it can pay back, to be honest. Now, we can maybe rely on the Fed, uh, but that is really short-term and not the way our country is built. Uh, do the Republicans recognize that the borrowing cost for some states is just too high and that through no fault of their own, they had a huge amount of, of COVID victims? Well, the fact is, is what we do in the HEROES Act is to say this money is strictly for the cost incurred because of the corona virus and addressing the health care needs. It's also to offset the revenue lost because of the coronavirus. If you go to speaker.gov slash Heroes Act, you'll see how different communities across the country benefit from this. And every community in the country does, every state and every community, state and local government. This is very important. Most of them have to balance the books uh, by the end of June, by June 30th, effective J- July 1. They really need the Heroes Act to be passed now, to be passed now. Uh, uh, you talked earlier about how the economy is coming back. Well, I think the Fed is doing a really good job in bolstering the stock market. Uh, they've put out so much money in terms of the, uh, the, shall we say, the goal of credit and bonds and all the rest of that, uh, that why not have the market go up? We just want some of that other money to be spent to bolster the working families in America who've lost their jobs because of no fault of their own, whom these viruses uh, debilitating in terms of getting the economy moving again until we test, trace, treat, and isolate as we wear our masks. There's a, uh, you know, I am someone who tries to be constructive at a time when it's difficult, and I know that you've got us, uh, you stand united with Republicans on one key issue, which is what's China really doing to us? You have been one of the few people even willing to mention Tiananmen Square. It's almost forbidden. And yet we know it was one of the great human rights violations. We also know that they want the Chinese are still listing companies that are taking Americans money and then not fulfilling the promise of having honest financials. When does this end? Well, I, I thought it would have ended by now. Uh, but actually, uh, Democrats and Republicans have catered uh, to the Chinese government. But Democrats and Republicans, on the other hand, have worked together uh, 31 years ago was the Tiananmen Square massacre. In 1991, I stood with my Republican and Democratic colleagues in Tiananmen Square, unfurling a banner remembering those who had died at Tiananmen Square. Uh, we thought uh, that, that if we could use our leverage with the Chinese, that we could free those prisoners, we could open our markets, they could stop violating our intellectual property, they would stop selling weapons technology for weapons of mass destruction 
destruction and delivery systems to rogue nations, but they didn't, not for a very long time. And now, and now, just again, in a very bipartisan way, we passed three bills, the Uyghur bill, which we just sent to the president, the, the Hong Kong democracy bill that we sent to the, that the president has signed, as well as the uh, legislation that relates to Tibet. Bipartisan, bicameral. We cannot be naive when it comes to the Chinese. They have no intention of stopping ripping off our intellectual property. Uh, they have no intention of giving us the market access of that we need. And it's a, unless we would join globally with the EU and have real market strength uh, to say to them, we're no longer going to be at the mercy of your trade violations. We're going to work together. Now let's negotiate. That would do it. That's how you get it done. One last question. Have you been as impressed as I have, uh, Madam Speaker, that there are CEOs and we know CEOs. We go way back. There are CEOs who would never even pay attention to something like the travesty that occurred in Minneapolis. But there are many CEOs coming on our networks and actually realizing that they haven't done nearly enough. They're not they're not uttering platitudes. They're putting together plans. What can we do to continue? to make it so that the CEOs remember that they have an obligation, particularly because they're paid hundreds of thousands more than uh, millions more than most of the people who work for their companies. Sometimes they make in two weeks what some of their employees make in a lifetime. What I'm hopeful about is their children. Uh, children are asking their parents now, what are you doing to preserve the planet? What are you doing to make things fair? And I, I do think that that has had an impact on some very wealthy people anyway, and not just about philanthropy, uh, but to make some business choices that are more, shall we say, uh, fair and safe uh, for the future. But I do think that we have to recognize uh, that we all have a role in all of this. And there's private uh, philanthropy, private uh, uh, consideration on how you run your company, or you just say, I want tax breaks and I want no regulation and I'll just put up with anything, uh, uh, any uncertainty, any lack of values, any of the rest of it in order to get my tax break and my company not regulated. So I'm glad to hear that you're seeing evidence of some values dominating what's going on. Uh, but as you know, for most companies, the profit motive, the business, uh, the business plan is just to, uh, uh, to make money. And um, we don't begrudge anyone their success at that. We do not like the exploitation of workers, the environment, or our, our uh, character of a country that we are. I do have uh, my own comments that I have made about those whose business model has been built on conveying falsehoods. Uh, no. to the American and people. I know that that's actually falsehoods are actually bad for business. And anyone who encourages them is actually bad for business, even people who are necessarily thought of as pro-business. It's a mistake. As you know, also, the unrest is not is just tragic. A lot of it motivated, I think, from economic realities that are often ignored. Well, I do think that we have to be unifying as we go forward. You know, we can talk about what happened when and what and all that, uh, but uh, I, I, there's been something very, uh, a pattern of bad behavior in terms of, of how people are feed, treated unfairly in our country. But let's, let's make this, take this moment to be a, an inflection point, a pivotal one that we are going to not just proceed incrementally, 
uh, but in a very strong way to do things differently. And part of that difference will be to say, what are the solutions that can unify our country, rather than assigning blame or past performance, but to say, how do we go forward together? And let us recognize the role that the private sector plays in the economic life of our country, job creators, wealth creators, and the rest. But let us also know uh, that there is good governance that, uh, that creates jobs as well as enables business to function uh, because of the services rendered uh, by the public sector. Well, Madam Speaker, I think it's hard to disagree with that. And if people do, it's going to be, I don't think it's going to be well received by voters. Thank you so much for coming on Mad Money. Thank you. My pleasure always. Thank you. That's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with some important words. May have money back into the book. When you look at the beatdown in the packaged food stocks, it's good this rotation out of the pantry place and into a lot of stocks like the airlines and restaurants of lower quality, by the way, has begun. Take J.M. Smuckers, the maker of Folgers Coffee, Jif Peanut Butter, Smuckers Jelly, and those delicious Uncrustables PB&J sandwiches that are so popular, along with several pet foods and snack brands. This morning, Smucker reported some fantastic results for the three months ending in April. Just a strong top and bottom line beat. Clean. However, when management issued guidance for their new fiscal year, those numbers came in much lower than Wall Street was expecting. It was the kind of forecast that made you wonder if this company's best days were somehow behind it. No wonder the stock got hammered, seeking nearly 5% today on great numbers. Now, at these levels, the stock sports a 3.2% yield, and it's far from expensive. But can investors get excited about this one in a post-COVID shelter at home? world. Let's take a close look with Mark Smucker. He's the president and CEO of J.M. Smucker Company. You get a better read on the quarter and his company's prospects. Mr. Smucker, welcome to Mad Money. Jim, thank you for having me. All right. So, Mark, I went over all the things that went right this quarter, and then I went over your guidance, and I have to say that it made me feel that your brands may not have any growth or no organic growth, and yet that seems almost impossible given the momentum you have. Well, you're right. So first of all, our brands will grow in this coming year. As we think about and looking through the year, our core business is strong. You're right. We had a fantastic quarter, but the guidance that we gave was meant to help explain to our investors the real impact of COVID. But if you think about some of the key things that have gone on, number one, a million new households on our coffee brand, three quarters of which are on Folgers. Uncrustables, one of your favorite products, grew 50% in the quarter. And actually, in the quarter, we sold more Jif peanut butter than we ever have. And so consumers are rediscovering, in many cases, some of these brands that maybe over the past couple of years, they've lost a connection to. It also shows that these bigger brands are still trusted, and the categories in which we operate are resilient. So if you think about what will grow next year, it's Uncrustables, it's Duncan, it's Cafe Bustello, Meow Mix, Milkbone, all of those brands we're expecting to grow. I do think also uh, that you were uh, – I, look, I love conservatism because I really want people to underpromise. But it was almost as if you said that 
our uh, our service business is going to be down, but it won't be made up by our at home. Now, that's actually a bad description, because what I think is really going to happen is that the people, the work at home people are going to be eating at home. And we're not going to put all those people back in the offices because it turns out to be expensive. Those will be peanut butter and jelly in and uncrustable eaters, won't they? Yes, and that is the number one lunch sandwich in the United States. If I could just break down in in a very simple way our guidance and what it reflects. First of all, the huge beat in Q4, roughly $170 million, which we will be lapping, obviously, a year from now. And that is a very difficult comp. And then our away from home business, which has actually been incredibly strong leading into the COVID situation, has been gaining share in all of its segments, which are Uncrustables, coffee, which you see in both offices and in uh, large venues, hotels, and so forth, uh, as well as our tabletop branded. So the little uh, jam and jelly that you find at any one of our uh, retail you know, restaurants around the country, that business is going to be down significantly. Okay. And because it has a very uh, high asset base, that headwind, we cannot totally offset with the growth in the other okay. businesses. That's fair. That's fair. One thing I thought that was left out, but maybe it's because I'm enamored of them and others aren't, but I sure hope that changes. You, uh, you guys gave me some, you know, a big be- box of the Sahali snacks. I took them home right. to my vegan daughter and vegetarian daughter, and they thought I had come up with a, the great one. I didn't tell them they were smuckers. I said they were owned by some small merchant that started to make a comeback. And they were like, wow, this is the this is the candy. This is the snack we want. Never mentioned in the conference call. I mean, didn't somebody sample this thing? <laughs> well, it is a fantastic product, I will tell you. And actually, our stated strategy involves not only these big brands, but it also is about these smaller emerging brands, which Sahali is one of those. It is a boutique brand. It was founded in Seattle by two entrepreneurs. We acquired it several years ago, and we have just gotten to a place now where it's really starting to take off. And you can find it in a lot of places, one of which is airports, which none of us are going to right now. But it has grown, and it is a fantastic product, and it's healthy. Uh, Uncrustables we have to talk about because when you get a 50 percent growth, that is a breakout in the food business. Uh, How did this happen? And is this the beginning of 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 the trajectory? Uncrustables Jim is a brand that we acquired way back around the turn of the millennium, around 2000. It was a one million dollar business. Today, it's north of three hundred and fifty million dollars. It took us a long time to figure out how to make that product. We just opened a new plant in Colorado, which we are still expanding. And we are now in a place where we truly can supply the market with that fantastic product. And I might add as well that we have a lot of innovation. So if you look at this past year that we just ended, $360 million of our sales came from new products. And coming into this year, we have a number of new products, whether it's in pet food with nutrition and milk bone treats. And then we have a new GIF squeeze product that is fantastic and really delivers. So really combining those high growth uh, brands like Uncrustables 
with some of our broader innovation is going to be a key focus for us here in fiscal 21. All right. Last question. Uh, you probably have a because of your lunch food, uh, better call than most. How many what percentage of the people that have scattered around the, the earth because of covid are not going to the central office? Do you think will go back and how many do you think will stay at home? You know, what we have assumed going forward over these next 12 months is a slow, gradual return to normal. In our own case, we're not bringing people back to the office yet. We have to be respectful of our employees. They've been working so hard over these past few months and really risen to the occasion and shown that it's as as a key player in the food industry, it really is our time to shine and show that we have an obligation to meet the needs of, of our consumers. But our assumptions are that it will be a relatively slow, at, at least over a 12-month period, where, until we get back to a, a much more normal uh, lifestyle. All right, fair enough. Well, there's a lot of time for people to sample more Folgers or Uncrustables and know how good they are. Thank you so much, Mark Smucker, President and CEO of J.M. Smucker. Great to see you, sir. Thanks so much, Jim. Okay, Mad Money be back after the break. For months, the stay-at-home stocks were the best performers in this market. But now we're seeing a major rotation back into the going-out stocks. So what do we do with the biggest winners from the shelter-in-place economy here? Consider the case of Shopify, the software company that helps small businesses embrace e-commerce. With a stock that's rallied from the low 300s in March to 844 at its highest last month, we're pulling back today to 735. A month ago, Shopify reported an incredible quarter. And while the shelter-in-place economy may be coming to an end, in the interim, it's fundamentally changed the way millions of Americans do business. While the stock is historically expensive, I'm betting it will keep trending higher over the long haul. But do not take it from me. Let's check in with Harley Finkelstein, the chief operating officer of Shopify, to get a better sense of how this company's doing where it's headed. Harley, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim. Thanks so much for having me um, on the show. It's always always a great pleasure and honor to be with you. Oh, thank you. Harley, I think there's some, a mistake that I know that you can clarify. A lot of people feel that when uh, the all clear happens and we don't have to stay in, in, in place, it's the end of an omni channel that's been unleashed and basically created by Shopify. It, it, there's no way it gets back. The genie ever goes back in that bottle, does it? Yeah. So uh, if I may, just before I jump into that, I just want to talk quickly about um, Shopify's stance on everything that's going on, because I think it, it, it behooves us to just at least sure. address that for Absolutely. a moment. Um, you know, as you know, Shopify, we stand for equality. Uh, we Since inception, our entire core value, our mission was all about leveling the playing field and allowing for fairness so that anyone can rise up and build great businesses. And we are really, uh, as you are, I'm sure, deeply saddened by some current events. And, and we stand with our black merchants, our black employees and the black community uh, worldwide. So I just wanted to mention that at the outset. Well, I, I th- um, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because the looters uh, in many cases are hurting places that don't have the right insurance, that are minority owned, that are just going to be done in an era of social distancing and an era where we're not able to even get the insurance money. Yeah. Well, look, we believe the future of commerce needs to have diverse voices, more voices, not fewer. And so, again, we started the business because we felt it wasn't fair. If you want to start a business 15 years ago online, you needed a lot of money, you needed a lot of experience. And so our mission from day one has been to level that playing field. And it feels more important now than ever before to do that. Now, as a small business person, I have, I'm one of the 40% when I started, uh, Harley. I had a, she- I had a checking account. 
It was my checking account. I started my business with my checking account. I didn't have enough money to to actually say, listen, I want an accountant. And you know what? That's a fundamental detriment. It's a major reason why small businesses fail. You cracked the code. You figured that out. And what you're doing can really save a lot of businesses that are thinking about starting right now. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what you're mentioning is Shopify balance. But I I think just to zoom out for a second, what you've seen has been working on over the last 10 years or so in particular, is after we helped small business and entrepreneurs figure out how to build a beautiful, scalable online store, we then said, now let's help them with physical commerce, help them sell offline as well. Let's help them sell on places like Facebook and Instagram and marketplaces. But there is this other aspect to running a business, and that's what we call merchant solutions. And so we realized that if we were to aggregate all of our stores, we would be the second largest retailer online in America. And that gives us incredible economies of scale that we can go and negotiate on behalf of these small businesses. So we first started with Shopify payments and made sure that people were able to accept uh, credit cards at affordable rates in a very easy to use fashion. We then went to things like capital because we felt that, frankly, it was really difficult for small businesses to, to get capital, to get money from a bank, fulfillment and shipping. But this new thing that we're introducing is Shopify balance. And I think you and I would agree that historically banks have really underserved and undervalued SMBs. It's the reason we started Capital. And so we're offering this new product called Shopify Balance really to give merchants access to critical money management tools, whether they need to manage their cash flow, whether they need to reconcile things like their payments from various channels, and where they can get paid uh, and get paid to a bank account very quickly to manage day-to-day operations. Um, but that's really our next merchant solution that we think further levels of playing field so that small businesses can compete because so many can't. Well, I checked in with Mark Zuckerberg about it because of your partnership. And he was saying he's, of course, incredibly excited about it, but that you guys have worked together. But that what you're trying to do with balance, with things like this, are what makes it so that when they do uh, the uh, Facebook shops, they are powered by a company that is the second largest merchant. The, the partnership yeah. seems like an actual real one, not just for show. It really is. So we've been working with Facebook on commerce and commerce tools since since the beginning, since they started thinking about commerce. And we're really excited about Facebook shops. Facebook shops will allow these free tools to help merchants create a very customizable digital storefront on Facebook and, of course, Instagram. And it's just it's one more place for merchants to connect with buyers. And I think the partnership, as you mentioned, really shows that the tech industry can come together to help businesses at a very critical time. But that is one more place where small businesses can connect with consumers and they can make more sales. Now, again, more channels equal more sales, but it does increase the complexity. And that creates more value for Shopify, which simplifies all of that into a single centralized retail operating system. I got to emphasize again, I don't think people get it, how theoretically dangerous it is, theoretically, to lend these companies money. Basically, you're giving them money. But and I read somewhere where someone said, well, they don't even know they're giving to. And I said, no, I I think this guy, Harley, I think he knows photographic memory for a lot of the shops. How many of them do you know personally? A lot. Um, a lot of them even have my cell phone number, and uh, I, get, I get daily updates. I've actually posted a few of them on social media telling me how they're not only surviving COVID and, and the global pandemic, but some of them are actually thriving. But you're absolutely right. We've now given out more than a billion dollars worth of cash advances and loans to small businesses. And again, these are not people and not businesses that could just simply go to a bank. And so they're using it for inventory and, and for marketing, and they're building their business. And when COVID first hit um, in that first week or two, we actually deployed an additional $200 million of cash advances and loans for these small businesses. We created gift card capabilities for uh, merchants that didn't, uh, more service type businesses. We created local in-store pickup and curbside pickup. Um, We created an email, Shopify email, which is free until October 
And then we created a 90-day trial so that anyone who needed to pivot their business very quickly was able to do so with Shopify. And we did that within the first couple of weeks of COVID hitting. So we felt that, uh, again, that mission of making commerce better for everyone and helping entrepreneurs feels now more important than ever before. Well, I'm so glad you said that. I mean, you really do. People say, how did they get that up so fast? How did they get that store up? They got that store up because of this man and his team. And his team, by the way, he does not. It's always about the team. It's never about the man or the woman. That's how good these guys are. That's Shopify COO Harley Finkelstein. It's a remarkable company, and it's also a darn good stock. Man, money's back into the break. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dag The lightning round comes over. Let's start with Betty in Michigan. Betty. Hi, Jim. A big booyah to you. Thank a, you for taking my call. A ski daddy booyah right back at you. Thank you. Um, I was calling about uh, Bunge. Bungie, yes, the agricultural company. You know what? We had that Corteva company on recently. I thought that they were very good. That stock's going to break out, too. Thank you so much, Matt Horwin, for signaling that breakdown to me. Let's go to Larry in Florida. Larry! Jimmy Cho. Joe, what's shaking, partner? Not much. I just wanted to say first and quick, thank you for your approachability and accessibility. Thank you. Yeah, you know what? Good you mentioned, Larry. I mean... In truth, of course, I've made myself way too much accessible to 1.4 million people who trash me every day. But you know what? I'm a resilient fella. What's going on? Not too much. Uh, I just wanted to know long term. What are your thoughts on NXP? Long term and short term. I like NXP. And by the way, the next part of this market that's going to run is auto. And NXP's got a lot of auto, even more than Kramer Fave Marvell Technologies. Ah. Rom in Georgia, Rom. Hey, booyah, Jim. Booyah, Ron. Hey, thank you for your guidance on the COVID-19 index. They really grew my portfolio for this crisis. What are your thoughts on uh, VMware, ticker symbol BMW? Sanjay Poonis Cup, you have to chat a really, really good quarter. I suggest you go over that one. And Dell, by the way, they they uh, do a lot of stuff that's really good for the home office, which you know is not going away. VMware was a really good quarter. I'm going to have to go to Darren, I think, in uh, Michigan. Darren. Hey, Jim. Love your show. Thanks very much Thank you. Uh, to you and your team. Thank hey, you. two-part question. With a strong presence in the e-commerce space, do you see Macy's avoiding a similar fate as some other brick-and-mortars? Okay, here's the deal. Macy's is down from 40 to 8. It wasn't 4. It has since doubled. They did get the extra bond money. They are going to be able to stay in business. They can do a lot of things. They have some optionality. The stock can go higher. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. What should our government do about China? Right now, the White House is at a crossroads, and I really hope they're thinking this thing through. From the administration's perspective, the Chinese government's guilty of a host of crimes against the United States. They absolutely dropped the ball on COVID-19 right out the gate, even if they eventually got their act together. But the early reports we got out of China turned out to be far from accurate, and a lot of people want to blame the Chinese authorities for misleading us. I think we were dealing with a novel disease, meaning something totally new, no one knew anything about at all, 
But unfortunately, that initial cluelessness was infectious, which is how you ended up with the World Health Organization telling us that masks were unnecessary when the exact opposite turned out to be true. Then just when we need uh, need more masks, turns out that most of the production is in China because we've been outsourced to manufacturing for decades. Doesn't look good. At the same time, you remember that preliminary trade deal with China late last year? Well, it turns out the Chinese government is going out of its way to avoid holding up its side of the bargain. Thanks for nothing. Meanwhile, Chinese companies continue to take advantage of our capital markets to fund companies that may or may not be bogus. Who knows? I got pressured by U.S. investment bankers when I questioned the bona fides of an outfit called Luckin Coffee, which turned out to be an almost total fraud. They were just making up sales. I didn't bend on Luckin, but I bet you some of those guys did. Our investment banks have become useful idiots for scam like Chinese companies that want to raise money here. The backers don't care. They just want the fees. Finally, on the cybersecurity front, China is still the biggest threat out there. We heard that all week. Throw in their government's malicious treatment of Hong Kong, where they pretty much suspended Hong Kong's separate legal system, and you can understand why that White House wants to take action. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The People's Republic is a bad actor, and they're not going to play by the rules unless we hold their feet to the fire, and we must. But, and this is the mother of all buts, with 20% unemployment in this country and a desperate need for places to export to, you have to ask, is this really the best moment to ratchet up the trade war? Can't we at least wait until America's back on its feet? Skip the whole Hoover thing before it gets out of hand? Now, I could be wrong. It's possible that we can't afford to wait. But the problem here is that we can't really tell. Our government's policy seems to be tweeting nasty things, not exactly the Monroe Doctrine. I think if we had a clear policy on China, we had a stated goal. If the White House could bring Republicans and Democrats together on this issue, and they are united, by the way, then the Chinese government might be more inclined to behave itself. They'd actually even be scared. So here's a thought. Enough trash talking. Want to escalate things? Let's protect investors from these potentially bogus Chinese IPOs. couple coming up. Slew of them, actually. Why not hold them up? Stop them. If we want to show China we mean business. Enough investor losses already. U.S. government, protect us from them. Without a plan, we're just antagonizing China for no reason. I'm fine with antagonizing the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> it's the right thing to do. But only if there's a policy, a plan, and a goal. Stick with Kramer and stick with CBC for a special hosted by my friend Scott Wapner at 7 p.m. Eastern. Tonight at 7 p.m., Chinese students are putting off coming to college in the U.S., cutting off a vital revenue stream. What will it mean for the colleges this fall and beyond? Plus, Wall Street's disconnect. And the NBA votes to return. What the rest of this season will look like. All tonight at 7 p.m. with Scott Wapner. This is not Armageddon. It's a painful time to own stocks, but it won't always be. I'm opening up the phone lines, taking all your questions. I just want to thank you for keeping us sane through all the turbulent times and reminding us to never panic. Thanks for everything that you do. And sure thanks trying. for talking me down off the ledge more than once. I don't know when the averages will bottom, but eventually there'll be bargains. People fault me for things I didn't do, and I get to read about that every day, and it's just really thrilling. But, you know, last night I got an email from Martin Franklin. He's a guy I really like, and he's formed Jordan and made a lot of money for people. And he reminded me that while he was involved with some of the SPACs that we talked about, I left out restaurant brands, which was just a huge winner. And by the way, the ones he's involved in haven't been losers. It's not as hot as they used to be. But restaurant brands have been one of the greatest stocks of all time. So anytime anyone feels that I have not given them a fair shake, like Martin Franklin did, Believe me, I am happy to change my view. Martin Franklin, you know what? I'm sorry. You are right. 
You've been a very big moneymaker my whole life. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you next time. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.